0: Good morning. Thank you, musicians. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn in them to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2. And look at verse... 8 and 9. Mark chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Congratulations, Johan and Maggie. Now, you know I'm around the corner, okay? So if you need anything, do not come knocking at my door. (laughs) I've got too many kids already. You have made the bed. Now you have to lie in it. But congratulations. Look at our verse. And immediately, Mark loves that word for some reason. Immediately. And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? Let's pray. Father, we don't appreciate you. I know I don't. I know sinful man can't appreciate you the way we ought to appreciate you. We look beyond the handiwork of your creation, the beauty that we see in all of the world's order, the way you have so graciously providentially moved history to our benefit, that we might be partakers of what is, Lord God, by your grace alone, the greatest nation on earth. That, Lord, our poverty would be riches in all other countries. And, Lord, we have taken for granted your word and our faith. And it is my hope, Lord, that you will speak through these sermons, that, Lord, we will do as a church what is essential to strengthening our faith so that we might be a church who does not need to be ashamed, who rightly divides the word of truth, and who is confident in their faith. Lord, I pray that you would give us ears to hear hearts to believe, brains to think, and hands and feet to do to make us a complete person in the faith. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The reason for this series is simple. Christians have, ever since the beginning of the 20th century, that is the 20th century, 1900s, Presuppose that their faith doesn't need to be explained. We simply say we have our beliefs and we don't need an explanation for it. You know, many of us have experienced, those of you who grew up in the church, what it is to be a young person who hears something in a sermon and not understand how that can be possible. Maybe when you grow up or when you first come to the faith, you really do wonder Do we actually believe in talking snakes, floods in the world so big that it required a boat and a man to build it for decades? Do we really believe that there was a virgin who conceived a child apart from the normal sexual union between a man and a woman? Do we really believe that this man, while he was here, healed literal blind people, as, as blind as, as some people we know who can't see? Do we literally believe that he raised men from the dead and that he himself rose from the dead? And what ends up happening is that it takes our credulity usually to a place that our minds are unwilling to go. And as a result, we abandon any need for explaining and we simply say, we have our faith. And the problem today is that we as Christians have unfortunately come to the point where we don't know why we believe what we believe. And our faith is therefore fragile. Fragile. There has to be a reason, church, beyond God's providence, why 70% of young people who grow up in the church when they go off to college and encounter a professor who can think, and he begins to question their faith, there has to be a reason why those young people abandon the faith and don't return. And I know why it is. I know that young people who at that moment, and I'm I'm not blaming them for this, this is a biological truth, at the moment of their sexual peak, are sent off to institutions in co-ed dorm rooms and see beautiful people of the opposite sex and some of the same sex and desire them sexually. They desire their freedom to experiment with drugs and with alcohol to consider other things and other possibilities about the world that they've never considered. And the temptation is great. And then they walk into a classroom where their professor gives them the worldview that will condone every sinful desire they have. There is no God then all things become permissible. Church, we are failing miserably at explaining why we believe what we believe. We are lazy in America about our faith. We have said that our faith is based in feeling. And let me tell you something, don't base anything on feeling. Listen to me. Feelings come and go. Yes, feeling feels good. But feeling cannot sustain you. It cannot sustain your marriage. My father had a very interesting philosophy. Whenever you begin to feel like you needed a new car, he would say, go and have your old car washed. The feeling for the new car will go away. That's what some of you need to do with your marriage. Husbands, you need to go take a bath because you are stinky. And that's why your wife doesn't want to be with you. In a real sense, you need to get your stuff together. You need to remember the wife of your youth, as Solomon said, and to embrace her and to love her, and to rekindle that flame. Anybody knows who, who sets fires? You know, in South Florida, we don't set fires a lot. That one night a year where it gets below 70, we take some wood. We don't even know what we're doing. We gotta look at YouTube and figure out how to light this thing. How do you do it again? I'm a master at lighting fires now. And I'm not a pyromaniac, but I do like to light fires in our backyard. And so, in in a place, by the way, in a a fireplace. (laughs) But anybody knows that the fire doesn't last forever. And it begins to get dimmer and dimmer and dimmer. And you got to go get another log and put it on the fire so that it'll get that energy back. This isn't a sermon about marriage. It's a sermon about your faith. You need to put some fire back on the logs of your faith. And let me tell you, you're not going to do it by feeling alone. You have to get up, grab the log, and throw it in the fireplace. It means you have to get active. You have to do something other than... Waste your time in the tabloids and in Netflix. You have to begin to study and know your faith. Listen to me. I am not preaching a legalistic message. I am telling you that what you believe matters. And in those times of greatest struggle, you need to have a firm foundation in your faith. And if you think you're firm, you're not. Think about others who rely on you Dad, children who don't know the answers to life's greatest questions, who need you to answer them. And if you don't, someone else will. I praise God that I have a father who answered my questions. And when he couldn't answer him, he said, I can't answer that. Give me a couple days. We'll get back to you. Listen to me, who wins these games today, these NFC championship and AFC championship will not matter. But what you believe about Jesus Christ does. There is nothing more important that we can do right now in this day and age then know why we believe what we believe I feel anger when I turn on the television and there is a stupid Christian giving a stupid answer for a serious problem you say, that is not nice Christians aren't supposed to say stupid let me tell you, let me say this again I hate when I see a stupid Christian giving a stupid answer to a serious question. Why did 100,000 people die in a tsunami? Oh, because they're an immoral nation. What? The word of God says, do you think that they were worse sinners than you? Unless you all repent, you shall all likewise perish. We don't think anymore. We just turn our brains off and we allow them to go on autopilot with stupid Christian cliches. But that's not the church we want to build. We say we're going to grow together. And this year we are going to focus on our minds. Because you can't do what you don't know. We're in the beginning sermons on a series entitled Basic Christianity, focusing on what are called the preconditions necessary for a Christian worldview. You're going to hear me use the word worldview from time to time. I'm also going to use it... Back and forth with the word Christian faith. So Christian faith, Christian worldview. When I use those, I mean the same thing. And essentially a worldview is this. It is a way of interpreting all of reality. It is the the glasses through which we see the world. It's the roots to our tree. Too many times Christians have seen the world in bits and pieces rather than in its total composition. And they divide Monday through Saturday with Sunday. They think that they have over here facts, and on the other side they have beliefs or their values. And that beliefs and values really don't have to be facts. And facts are indifferent about our beliefs. And so we divide what we believe about God with what we learn about the world. And this is no good. So a precondition is any presupposition about God, man, or the world that is essential for our faith. You know, in college, before you take another course, you have to take a prerequisite. You know what prerequisites are. Before I studied philosophy, it was required that you take logic, introduction to logic. Why? Because if you're going to deal with Immanuel Kant... You're going to deal with David Hume. You're going to deal with Edmund Burke, Hegel. You've got to be able to process and learn how to think because you're going to be given information that you don't know how to handle without logic. And if you don't have logic, you're going to be a mess. Really, that's what's happening on social media today. You've got a lot of people getting a lot of information with the expectation that they have to give their view on it and they don't know how to think. So what they say is usually something that's thoughtless, careless. And the response that we have from our friends or from the people who are on our Facebook page usually has is one of outrage because we said something we didn't know what we were talking about. These are the preconditions before we begin to talk about our faith. And Christians, you must be firmly planted in these if you're going to have a faith that is strong. Yes, the pretty part of the building is always the roof. But I can tell you, if it doesn't have a foundation, nothing else will stand on top of it. These preconditions form the necessary foundations of our worldview without which our worldview or our Christian faith cannot stand. In order for a Christian to be confident that the Bible is God's word, he or she must believe in God. I see weird statistics all the time that say there are X amount of Christians, Americans who are Christians, and X amount of Christians who aren't sure about God. Listen to me you cannot be a Christian and not believe in God. I'm always shocked by that disconnect, but it happens. In order for a Christian to believe that God's word reveals truth in all matters, you must believe not only in truth, but that truth is knowable. And you can't say that everybody has their own truth and believe that the word of God is true just for some. Because it doesn't say it's true just for some. It says it's true for everyone, everywhere, always, regardless of what you believe. And you will be judged by the word of God. In order for us to believe in the virgin birth, the trinity, the resurrection, and the future return of Christ, we must believe in miracles. So you see that these preconditions of our faith are essential beliefs. Thomas Morris, one Christian philosopher, explains the importance of our Christian preconditions as presuppositions this way. He says this. Presuppositions are the most basic and most general beliefs about God, man, and the world that anyone can have. One of the things that we do just by growing and getting older is that we begin to take things for granted, and then we get sloppy. Sloppy. Especially basic beliefs about the world. And we have to constantly go back and understand why we understand a thing. Listen to what he says. He says, these presuppositions are not usually consciously entertained, but rather function as the perspective from which an individual sees and interprets both the events of his own life and the various circumstances of the world around him. These presuppositions in conjunctions with one another delimit the boundaries within which all other less foundational beliefs are held. I told you last week I had a basketball coach tell me one time he can tell a lot from a player by how he plays, tell a lot about what a person believes by how he plays basketball. I love when I play golf with people and they, be, they walk up. I, this is why I started to call my dad reverend. Because we play golf and we would forget to tell people that we were Christian. And they, they began, you know, by the end of the first hole, Yoni has seen this happen. Johan was there when it happened one day. Some guy just went into a, he just started cussing God. I mean, because he, he's bad at golf, so now it's God's fault. Okay. Anyway, we're playing on the first hole and he just, he misses a putt. And he goes into all of these taking God's name in vain my dad's on the other side of the green. This dude is over here and he is a loose cannon anyway. This guy, not my dad, but kind of. And so, 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 so I'm, I'm sitting there putting and I'm thinking, I'm, I'm looking down at my ball. I'm not looking up and I'm thinking, oh gosh, I hope dad's not going to say something. I look up and dad is already over there. He, I've never seen him move that fast. He's standing there, and he is just going in on this guy, explaining to him this. But, but what's so interesting is that when we play with these guys, they'll, you'll start telling them, and then, then eventually they'll be telling dirty jokes and using language. Eventually you just say, I just can't handle this. It's just too much. Hey, listen, man, I'm a pastor. I'm a Christian. Can you just, do you mind? I don't want to hear the joke, these dirty jokes anymore. And then, oh, I'm a Christian too, And what I'm saying is your beliefs are demonstrated by how you act. But these preconditions for our faith is not usually consciously entertained, but is typically an unconscious presupposition about God and man and the world. However, when the foundations of our fundamental beliefs are not readily understood and firmly in place, the rest of our faith sits dangerously unstable, ready to topple at the slightest crack in our foundation. A couple Christmases ago, one well-known American evangelical pastor was criticized for making a comment about his uncertainty of the virgin birth or the virgin conception, to be more accurate. To be fair, the pastor came out shortly after the comment and reaffirmed his belief in the incarnation of Christ. But this is really secondary to my point. The pastor said, In his comment, if a person can predict his own death and resurrection, speaking of Jesus, he said, I'm not at all concerned about how they got into the world. That's what the pastor told his church of over 35,000 people. It's not who you're thinking. Now, being on this side of the pulpit, I have a lot of grace for pastors We often say things that are misunderstood and misconstrued. And it is incumbent upon you where you misunderstand us that you come and ask us what we mean when we said such and such. You have to show grace. Too many Christians are quick to leave churches when it doesn't go the way they want it to. You have to stop that. You have to stop. There are no perfect churches and there are no perfect pastors. You know how I know that? because there aren't any perfect congregations either. I only heard two amens. I'm a perfect congregant. You're not. We have to show grace if we're gonna get through this world, Amen? amen? Okay. We have to be gracious. And so I wanna be gracious to this fellow, but that's not my issue. My concern is why he made that statement at all. Why would the pastor assume that prophecy and resurrection are possible, but virgin conception isn't? Why would he accept one miracle and not another? Right? It doesn't make sense. And so we have to stop and look at these things and just ask the beginning question, does it even make sense? It is my opinion that had his foundational beliefs been strong, he would never have made such a mistake in calculated error. This morning, I want to talk to you about the second precondition of the Christian worldview. That is the belief in miracles. I want to define what a miracle is and explain why miracles, A, are true, B, how they relate to God's work in the world, excuse me, B, uh, uh, define miracle, B, explain why they're true, C, I wanna explain how miracles relate to God's providence in the world, and finally, I want to show you the purpose of miracles. Here is my propositional belief about miracles. The belief in miracles is a fundamental precondition for all the core beliefs of Christianity. The creation of the world Prophecy, virgin conception, resurrection, and even the regeneration of the sinner. We cannot simply separate stories of talking snakes and floods and virgins conceiving and dead men coming back to life without undermining the weightier matters of our faith. I'm saying that our belief in miracles is essential if we are going to believe the weightier matters of our faith. Namely, the salvation of our souls. Let's look first at what a miracle is. I want to define this. A miracle is not you going to Aventura Mall at Christmas time and getting a parking space at the very front of Macy's I know you think it is it's not and when you say that to lost people they think you're crazy and when you say it to me I do too it's not a miracle it's not a miracle is an act of God that occurs in the space and time continuum of the natural realm, and cannot be produced by physical laws and/or physical material. Give that definition again. A miracle is an act of God that occurs in the space and time continuum of the natural realm, and cannot be produced by physical laws and/or physical material. In other words, the reason why you got that parking space at the front of Macy's is because the old person who got there earlier than you did pulled out. We don't need to call Ripley and say you won't believe what happened. Not only do you downplay miracles, but you even downplay natural realm and natural physical sciences. Norman Geisler says it like this. A miracle is a divine intervention into or an interruption of the regular course of the world that produces a purposeful but unusual event that would not or could not have occurred otherwise. And when you begin to read the Bible, you're going to see there are all kinds of unusual supernatural events occurring. And the Bible's telling you this. Believe it. Critics have often criticized Christians for believing in miracles, since miracles, they say, are naturally impossible events. We would agree. But what the critic is defending is actually what Christians believe already, namely that the laws of nature are always in effect and that mathematics, scientific observation, and logic are always at play. That is precisely the condition that must be met in order for us to recognize an event as miraculous. In other words, we have to know how the world behaves and how nature behaves in order to say, it doesn't behave like that. Something else must be at play. There must be another If somebody starts moonwalking across the lake, we know that either that lake is frozen or he is walking on wood that we can't see. But once we examine that the lake is neither frozen and there is nothing underneath and he's walking on water, that is naturally impossible. Because we know the world. And we know that that's special. And if people are doing it all the time, it's not special. A miracle is an unnatural event, meaning that if miracles were common and they were part of the natural world, there would be no way of knowing what a miraculous and or what is miraculous and what is natural. That is, miracles cannot be reproduced by natural elements acting within the parameters of natural law. Richard Dawkins tries to, he's a famous atheist, he tries to disprove the belief in miracles by demonstrating just a mathematical experiment. So he takes an entire room of people, and he takes out a, a penny, and he brings somebody up on stage. I was going to do it this morning. I realized this could go really bad. And so he was flipping his, the, the penny. As the guy flip the penny. He says, look... We're going to do this. One side of the room is going to be heads. The other side of the room is going to be tails. Flips the penny, heads. That eliminates the tail side. Now he says, everybody upstairs is going to be heads. Everybody downstairs is going to be pennies. He flips it, and it comes up, and it's heads, and it eliminates the heads group. So on to the point where you get a person And his whole point is to say, someone in here believes that it's going to be them, and we're going to prove who's the psychic in here. We're going to prove who knows that it was coming to them. Everybody's thinking it's going to be them. And he gets down to the last person, and there's only one left standing, and we find out that the coin has been flipped eight times, and that person got all eight right. It's statistically very unlikely that the person is going to get all eight right, but guess what? The requirement is that someone must. It's what has to happen, logically, mathematically, and as if to drop the mic and say, see, Christians, you think this is miraculous, but this is explained by science. Therefore, miracles don't exist. What he doesn't understand is that every Christian who is a thinking Christian would say, that's exactly how it should have happened because we believe in mathematics, science, and logic. We don't disbelieve in those things. We believe that water wets. We believe that water is a liquid and when human beings walk on it, they're gonna fall in. That's why Peter didn't want to get out of the boat. Everybody else did not want to get out of the boat. It's a big deal. That's why Joseph, when his shoddy came over to him and said, hey, I'm pregnant. He didn't say, oh, that's cool. It must be from God. He, what, wanted to divorce her in private because he understands inserting tab A into slot B will produce babies, which apparently some people don't understand. We're finding that out. And so for these things to happen, you have to have a robust understanding of the natural world and believe these things. This is why Christians have to be careful when we define the word miracle because there's a lot of sloppy thinking. To call every occurrence of fortune quote-unquote miraculous downplays both God's true signs and wonders as well as the physical laws of nature themselves. And we don't want to do either one further danger exists. When we hold to false beliefs about miracles and natural law, we leave both our own faith and the faith of those we shepherd in serious danger. Let me give you an example. Justin Taylor wrote an article on Charles Taylor who used to minister alongside Billy Graham. Many of you will remember Charles Taylor but who started to have doubts about his faith after entering Princeton Theological Seminary. Now, let me just tell you really quickly. Princeton Theological Seminary has become the bastion of what is known as liberal theology. And liberal theology tries to do this. It tries to keep all of the serious beliefs about the faith without all of the miracles. But what Charles Templeton realized... And what many others have realized is if a man didn't really raise from the dead 2,000 years ago, you are still in your sins. That's what Paul said. If this really didn't happen, you're not saved. It's that serious. And so why we're talking about this precondition is that your salvation hinges upon this presupposition that these things may happen. If there is no resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15, then our faith is in vain. What are we doing here if these things didn't really happen? Go surfing. Don't waste your time here. I may not tell you anything about how to get richer and thinner today. In fact, you might become so depressed when you hear about how sinful you are, you might gain 15, 20 pounds. I've got nothing but truth to give you today. Listen to this exchange between Charles Templeton and Billy Graham. All our differences, this is Billy Graham telling the story. All our differences came to a head in a discussion which, better than anything I know, explains Billy Graham and his phenomenal success as an evangelist. In the course of our conversation, I said, this is Templeton, excuse me, but Billy, it's simply not possible any longer to believe, for instance, the biblical account of creation. The world was not created over a period of days a few thousand years ago, which, by the way, not every Christian believes. Some believe it was created thousands, if not millions of years ago. The world was not created over a period of days, a few thousand of years ago. It was evolved over millions of years. It's not a matter of speculation. It is a demonstrable scientific fact, says Templeton. I don't accept that, Billy said. And there are reputable scholars who don't. Who are these scholars, said Templeton. Men in conservative Christian colleges? Most of them, yes, said Billy. But that's not the point. I believe the Genesis account of creation because it's in the Bible. I've discovered something in my ministry, said Billy. When I take the Bible literally, when I proclaim it as the word of God, my preaching has power. I would say he is right. When I stand on the platform and say God says, or the Bible says, the Holy Spirit uses me, again, I would say amen. There are results, wiser men than you or I have been arguing questions like this for centuries. And here's where I go away from agreeing with Billy. He says this, I don't have the time or the intellect to examine all the sides of the theological dispute. So I've decided once for all to stop questioning and accept the Bible As God's word. But Billy, said Templeton, you cannot do that. You don't dare stop thinking about the most important question in life, to which I say, Mr. Templeton, the atheist, you are correct. Do it and you begin to die. I can tell you this your faith will begin to die. It is statistically provable. There was a day when this entire church was filled with people. We're one. Do you know that 70% of churches have less than 100 people in their church? 70%. The church has shrunk. They're saying that the church is growing by new converts at an average of 2.4%. He says here this is intellectual suicide. And then Billy says, I don't know about anybody else, but I've decided that this is the path for me. Well, let me ask this question. Are miracles true or are they just a belief? One of the most important things that we can do as Christians is distinguish between truth and belief. A person can believe in a lot of things that aren't true. Unicorns. Someone asked me one day, and I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna joke with you, for like 30 seconds, I had to make sure. They don't exist, right? Okay, just if you think I'm crazy, look at the Norwal or narwhal, whatever that is. There is a whale with a giant unicorn head coming out. I mean, it's crazy. Anyway, unicorns, you can believe in. You can believe in leprechauns. You can believe that there's a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. Go ahead and drive there. See if you find any gold. You could even believe that the Dolphins might win a Super Bowl. (laughs) But what you believe doesn't mean it's true. Truth, on the other hand, does not rest on a person's belief. Two plus two equals four, whether you believe it or not. That check that you hand the bank teller that you say says 1 million dollars, says 562, and that's what you're getting. All squares are rectangles, but not all rectangles are squares, is true. And the Dolphins are never going to win a Super Bowl, is true. And it doesn't matter what you believe. At the beginning of every year on sports radio they always say, "Just have faith." What's that going to do? I've had faith every year. No Super Bowl this year. Faith doesn't... We're we're talking about truth. Is it true? And where Brother Graham goes wrong is that he does not give Mr. Templeton a single reason why he should believe in Christianity. While on the other hand, the professors at Princeton have done nothing but give him reasons since he entered the seminary on why Christianity cannot be believed. You see, one group is willing to give reason and the Christians who should be giving reason aren't because they have said, I've got faith. I don't need to give you reason. And by the way, I do believe that a person can believe in the truths of Christianity. They can believe in the points of faith and never know how to explain it and die and go to heaven. But as we learned last year, what did Peter say? If you're not increasing in knowledge, you are ineffective and unfruitful. And guess what? If there's any two words that describe the church today, it's this, ineffective and unfruitful. I don't mean the church organization, I mean you. The church just means ecclesia, those called out. It's referring to a people. What are you doing If you are convinced that something is true, the whole world's going to be caught on fire with your belief, but you're not. In reality, you are ashamed of the gospel because you don't know why you believe what you believe. Listen to what Francis Schaeffer, who eventually left America and moved to Europe, said, many Christians do not mean what I mean when I say Christianity is true or truth. They are Christians and they believe in, let us say, the truth of creation or the truth of the virgin birth or the truth of Christ's miracles or the truth of Christ's substitutionary death and the truth of his coming again. But they stop there with these and other individual truths. When I say Christianity is true, I mean it is true to total reality. The total of what is, beginning with the central reality, the objective existence of the personal infinite God. Christianity is not just a series of truths, but truth. Truth about all reality. And the holding to that truth intellectually. That means you have to love God also with your minds. Minds. And then in some poor way, living upon that truth, the truth of what is. Christianity is truth. Stop saying you have your beliefs and I have mine. You don't believe that, Christian. At least you're not supposed to. You are supposed to believe that what you believe about God and his word is truth. And it is not just true for me and false for you, or you have your own little t truth. Because truth doesn't operate that way. Many of us don't even know how to define truth. What is truth? Truth is what corresponds to reality, it's what is. Truth is real, truth is absolute. And the truth is true for everyone, everywhere, always. I like vanilla ice cream. That statement is true for every one of you. Now, some of you are saying, oh, wait a minute, I like chocolate. No, listen to the statement. The statement is, I like vanilla ice cream. And guess what? If the question were to be asked to you, what do you believe about Mr. Summers or Pastor Summers? Does, what type of ice cream does he like? What type of ice cream do I like? Vanilla. Vanilla. And it's true for everyone. The truth is absolute. And your opinions about truth don't matter about Christians must accept the truth of God's word and not stop understanding the world around them. That's where Graham goes wrong. As Augustine first said, we believe that we may understand. You should believe. No, you should not be seeking to see whether or not God's word is really true. No, no, no. Listen to me. Believe that it's true and expect it to be proven as such. Believe that it is true and expect it to be proven as such. Don't be afraid that someone is going to unearth the bones of Jesus. They're not. Let me ask you have they? Nope. And they're not going to. Believe it. And continue to seek and explain. Don't be shocked when you find out the best example of this would be that the universe began to exist. Do you know that for millennia, scientists believed that the universe was just always there? Philosophers believed it was just always there. But we know better. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That means there was a time when it was not and then there was a time when it was. So it had to have a beginning. And guess what they found out in roughly 1920, the early 20th century, a little Catholic priest named Dominic LaMitra took the equations of Einstein and what Einstein tried to hide, he unearthed and found that science and math and the laws of physics take us to a beginning point of the universe. And as one person said about that, as scientists were about to come upon the highest peak in scientific knowledge that the world had ever seen, they found that on the other side was a band of theologians sitting there saying, We knew this all along. Both the Christian and the atheist begin this way. Don't you know that? Don't you know that the atheist evolutionist begins by presupposing that Darwin was right? And therefore, all evidence that he finds will prove Darwin? So, what about miracles? Are miracles true? What if I told you this morning I could prove to you that miracles are the only possible explanation for our existence? I can prove to you through reason, that miracles are the only possible explanation. If there ever was nothing, as in no thing, there would still be what? Nothing. Because nothing by definition is what? The absence of everything. Nothing by definition is the absence of everything. And so if there ever was nothing, there'd still be nothing but we know that something exists. We know we're here. Therefore, there has always been something. It has to be this way. If we're here, there has to be something. But it is impossible for something to never be created. Is it? It is required that by our existence there be something that has always existed. And it is required that that being, whatever it is, must be uncreated. How do I know that? Because every effect has a cause. And in the category of things that begin to exist, the universe and all that is, is one of those things that begins to exist. Whatever made the universe must exist and it must be uncreated itself. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here. You cannot go infinitely into the past. You can go forward, but you can never go back infinitely. If we have three dominoes here and I knock one over and it knocks the next one over, you can't say that an infinite amount of dominoes has to fall before these two fall. You know why? Because these two will never fall. It has to be a finite amount of dominoes. And if those dominoes represent moments in time, then it is required that the moments in time be finite. And if it came into existence, it couldn't have come into existence from nothing. It had to come into existence from something. And that thing has to be uncreated. And guess what? That's a miracle. Christians, you don't have to abandon your brain to be a Christian. You don't have to leave your brain at the door. And I'm gonna encourage you to stop doing that. Start thinking. Listen to me, I was the dumbest kid to ever go to college. I know my dad said that. I'm telling you I was dumber. See, I don't even know how to speak correctly. I walked around with a book, a little dictionary that I still have. It was a pocket dictionary. It wasn't really a pocket dictionary. My pocket looked like this all the time. And I walked around with that and every word I didn't know, I'd just pull it out and I'd start to because I got tired of being laughed at. I got tired of not knowing. You can, you can know. You don't have to check your brain at the door. So I can tell you miracles exist. Miracles are real. This proves that we have reason for our belief. Finally, look at our passage this morning. What is the purpose of a miracle? I'm going to skip point three. That's for another time. I want to answer this question in conclusion. What is the purpose of a miracle? Let's go back to our verse and look at the beginning of the passage. So we know miracles are not only possible, but miracles are the only explanation for our existence. So then when we read stories of miraculous happenings, we should not be shocked. Listen to what the word of God says. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was home. And many were gathered together so that there was no room, not even at the door. Why do you think there were that many people in that house? They didn't come to hear his musings on life. They came so that their life may be better. That's why a lot of us come to church. We think as human beings that if you come here, you're gonna get the answer to how to live your best life now. And let me tell you, this church will not do that. We are here to tell you how to be disciples of Christ. And should God in his mercy let that be your best life now in terms of success, That is his persuasion. They came to be better. How do I know that? Listen to how the story progresses. It says they came, there was no room, and when he was preaching the word to them, that's what Jesus is there for. That's what the pastor should be here for, to preach the word to you whether we like it or not. They came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed of the paralytic that the paralytic lay. If I was the owner of the house, I would have said, what are y'all doing? You know, you have to pay for that roof. I just paid for one. Let me tell you. I wish I could have put some mud and hay on top of it. Holy cow. Holy cow. That's how we know that they're there for their miracle. Because they are willing to destroy a man's private property to drop his bed down there. Because I tell you what, if I was paralyzed and I thought there was a man inside a house that could get, man, listen to me. Dig a hole in that roof and when I get better, I'll figure out how to fix it. Wouldn't you... And for just a moment, have some compassion on the people who get in their wheelchairs and go to the faith healer. I might do it. I believe the charlatans are responsible, not the people. I understand why they would go. And here is this paralytic, but he's going to someone who has proven his. Jesus didn't take off his tunic and wave it and everybody fall down and nobody be verified. They were verified. Jesus says to them, Go and be, go and have your, your cleaning. Go go to the priest and, and he'll he'll put a verification of what I did. Jesus didn't heal blind people nobody's ever seen. He would walk up, if he was living today, he'd walk right over to the piano and he'd say, Stevie. <laughs> And everybody go, oh my gosh, Stevie Wonder. We know he's been blind his whole life. That's what Jesus did. So they drop this cot down from the ceiling and some of the scribes are sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? So the scribes are there, they're listening to what Jesus said, but the crowds are there for their healing, for their miracle. So really nobody's there for the right reason. They say he's blaspheming who can forgive sins but God. And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves and said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? The answer is obvious it is easier to tell someone their sins are forgiven. You can't prove that. And a lot of these quote-unquote faith healers, they love to prove diseases you didn't even know you had. You had cancer. I did? It's gone. Woo! Jesus asked a very simple question. Based upon his presupposition of the natural laws, he doesn't check his brain at the door. He assumes science is true. That paralyzed people stay paralyzed. And short of a a medical miracle, they don't walk again. And it is easier to tell somebody that their sins are forgiven since nobody can know. But that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed. Now just just imagine for a second, this paralytic is laying in a cot and Jesus says to him, your sins are forgiven. That paralytic must have been so disappointed. I didn't come for that. But Jesus says, let me show you something, rise and go. And immediately he picked up his bed and went out before all of them so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. You know what I'm afraid of, Christian? When you go chasing miracles, that you're more impressed with the ability to walk than with the fact that your sins are forgiven. The kingdom of God is not a circus. This is why he doesn't show his miracles, reveal his miracles to those who question him. Jesus is not here to juggle for your entertainment. He is here to forgive you of your sins. And the point of these miracles is not to show you how good he is. It is to show you that when he says to you, your sins are forgiven if you believe in my name, that you can take that to the bank. I want to ask you, do you believe in the lesser doctrine, the smaller doctrines of miracles, so that you might believe in the weightier doctrines of the faith? Paul encountered a group of people in Corinth who were liberal in their theology. They were reading on Twitter every night. They were reading on Facebook. They read Yahoo. They read the magazine in Publix that said, the miracles are fraudulent. They watched History Channel that said, these things are impossible. They read the God Delusion by Richard Dawkins. And they said, you know what? I still like the morals of the Christian faith. I'll hold on to it. And Paul came to them and he said, let me ask you something. How can you believe that you're forgiven of your sins if you don't even believe that Christ raised from the dead? Christian, what matters in these miracles, what matters in this precondition is the weightier matters of the faith. I can tell you this morning that if you will believe in Jesus Christ as your savior, you will be forgiven of your sins. Why? Why? Because the one who said that rose from the grave. Let's pray. Father, you are magnificent. You have not left us out in the dark. Your word tells us in the book of Acts that Jesus, after you rose from the dead, you went around and you gave many convincing proofs That when Thomas said to you, I will not believe until I see the scars in his hands and in his side. You, Jesus, so compassionately gave to him your hands and said, take and believe. Jesus, you gave to the world all the evidence that it needs. You rose from the dead. And we know that if we have faith in you, if we are your disciples, we will have life not only in this one, but in the one to come. We praise you, God. Thank you, amen.